Today I want to give you a, a bit of an overview of the book as a whole. And I want to ask you in this next week to read the book. It's 13 chapters. It's doable. You can do it. You may not understand it all. But my hope today as I give you a big picture of the book is you have a better idea what's happening in that particular letter. So uh, I want to be able to do that uh, for us today. Now, back in 1981, it was Christmas in the Fowler household. I was a senior in high school. I had one semester left before I was heading to college. My brother came back from the U.S. from college uh, to be with our family. And when he got back and he got off the plane, he was wearing a jacket that I secretly coveted. It was a, a, a starter jacket. Uh, it was a Yankees starter jacket. I didn't covet it because I loved the Yankees, but it was just shiny and blue and from America. And uh, when you're living on foreign soil, anything that's American uh, is sort of, it's, it's a priceless commodity. And so I, I sure wished I had a coat like his. And uh, Christmas morning came, and I got two surprises that Christmas morning. Surprise number one, my brother bought me a Christmas present. Uh, surprise number two, when I pulled back the paper on that present and opened the box, inside that box was a starter jacket. Not a Yankee starter jacket, but this sort of Dodger blue color. And as I pulled it out, it said Dodgers on the front. And I stuck my arms in the sleeves and I pulled that thing around my body and I snapped all those snaps. And I wore that Dodger starter jacket with pride. I wore it all through Christmas vacation in Hong Kong, not because it was cold, but just because I had the jacket and I could wear it. And I loved it. And I, and I stuck it back in, in, in my room as I headed to, to boarding school for my last semester, came back after boarding school, put it in my luggage as I headed to college back in the U.S., uh, and I was grateful to have something that was American uh, as I was coming back to, to the States. Now, I went to college in San Francisco, California. <laughs> Track with me? I'm at college, uh, I'm a month into college in San Francisco, and the upperclassmen invite the underclassmen uh, to go with them to a baseball game. There's a rivalry game happening in town. It's the Dodgers versus the Giants. So me, fresh off the boat from China, decide this is a great opportunity to wear my Dodger starter jacket. I put it on, I'm gonna fit in, this is so great. I go to the game with my buddies. We buy the cheapest tickets that we can find. We're sitting in general admission, and I, we're there, and I'm starting to notice that anyone wearing Dodger blue is getting some pretty strange looks. Some things are being said to them. In fact, when we were walking in, I had people look at me and scowl at me, and, and, and these hand gestures were directed my way that I can't even begin to repeat to you. Uh, and, and then we sat down, and I'm wondering, man, what, what's going on? I have no concept of sports rivalries. I just figure everyone loves each other. It's America. And we're, we're at this game, and then I'm noticing kind of like a, like a pack of hyenas surrounding a wounded gazelle. There's these, these giant fans, and they've encircled a couple Dodger fans, and they're threatening them. They're saying mean things to them. And then I turn over here, and I watch a fight break out with guys. Their shirt doesn't even say Dodgers. It's just baby blue, Dodger blue. And there's a fight breaking out over there. So... I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but, you know, I'm starting to watch things happen, and so I make the decision. I unsnap my Dodger jacket very quickly. I roll it up. I stick it in my backpack, and I make a decision. I'm a Giants fan. <laughs> and I've been a Giants fan ever since 1982, my first year in college. Now, you may be thinking, Fowler, you're a wimp. You caved. You're right. I did. I did. Because being a Dodger fan living in San Francisco came with a personal price, right? 
There's a personal cost you pay to show up at a, at a Dodger Giant game or any Giant game wearing a Dodger starter jacket. I just decided away with the Dodgers, and I'm now a Giants fan. Now, that's a lot like the book of Hebrews in a way. Not because Hebrews is about sports rivalries, but really the context of this book that we're going to look at here in these next months is the context of a people who began a new journey with Jesus Christ, specifically Jews. Jews who heard the gospel being preached and believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And they entered into a relationship with Jesus with enthusiasm and excitement. And they're going off with Jesus. This Jesus that, you remember, we, we uh, looked at the prophecies from Isaiah uh, this, this last Christmas season. Emmanuel, God with us. This Jesus who was prophesied to be born in Bethlehem. He was born there. This Jesus who was born and, and he's worshipped by angels. He grows up in wisdom and stature. He's baptized. Uh, the power of the Spirit comes on him. He goes into the wilderness. He's tempted. He comes out in the power of the Spirit. And he announces in a synagogue, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me to preach good news. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 61. He's beginning his earthly ministry. And as he begins, the crowds are flocking to him. Jesus is a masterful teacher. He teaches with an authority that no one has seen before. He's doing things that no one's seen before. I mean, incurable diseases like leprosy are being healed. The people who are lame, who can't walk, are now walking. People who have been buried are coming out of their graves. People with, uh, with, uh, with hands that are shriveled, their, their hand is growing right in front of, of, of others who are watching this. I mean, this got people's attention, and people flocked to Jesus. They loved him. Yet, Jesus would tell his closest friends, his disciples, in this world, you'll have trouble. These people are going to hate me, and when you follow me, they're going to hate you as well. The disciples didn't understand it, but the Pharisees were conspiring, and Jesus would go to the cross, and he would be crucified, and those followers would not stay with Jesus. They would scatter in fear, yet they would be regathered at the resurrection, at the ascension, Jesus would tell them to go to Jerusalem because in Jerusalem on Pentecost, the power of the Spirit would come upon them. And guess what? Those disciples, those followers, would go just as Jesus did and they would perform healings and miracles. They would teach with authority and the crowds flocked to them, thousands. Yet in this world, you will have trouble. The Pharisees conspired against the disciples. Persecution broke out in Jerusalem, and then the church went worldwide. The gospel went to places like Ephesus, Corinth, Athens, and Rome, and, and it went specifically to synagogues. And when Jews there heard this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they believed they were excited about Jesus the Messiah. Yet as they got going, they discovered, yes, in this world you will have trouble. And there was this pain that came to be associated with being a Christian in that first century in, the, in, the, in that world as it was known. I mean, in Ephesus, because so many people turned to Christ, the sales of idols plummeted. It was a recession. And, uh, and the economy tanked because of Christians. And it caused a riot. And it was not a, it was not a popular thing to wear your Christian jacket, if you know what I mean. And in, in Corinth, and in Athens, and in Rome, 
To be a Christian was to be part of this weird group. And by the way, persecution started rising. People weren't being martyred yet. But what was happening is if you were a Christian, you lost your job. If you were a Christian, you lost your home or property. If you were a Christian, and you'll see this as you read Hebrews this week, if you were a Christian, you could be shunned by your family who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. There was this pressure on these early believers, much like there was pressure on me at Candlestick Park wearing my shiny blue jacket. There's this much more incredible pressure on these new believers to silently slink away from the person of Jesus and go back to their Jewish roots. To not stay with Jesus. They were enthusiastic about that, but now there's a personal cost to pay to follow Jesus. And some were thinking about it, some were actually leaving the faith and going back to Judaism. And that's why this book of Hebrews was written. Walter Martin puts it this way. Walter Martin says, Hebrews is a letter to Hebrews telling them to stop acting like Hebrews. <laughs> All right? That's what the book of Hebrews is about. And it has a distinctly Jewish flavor to it, which is why we took the time to study Leviticus, why we talked about the sacrificial system and high priests and all that, because a lot of the language in Hebrews is that same language. So you'll have a better, uh, better understanding. If you didn't get a chance to go to the Leviticus series, that you can get it on our podcast. It'll help you get caught up. But Martin is saying Hebrews is a letter to Hebrews telling them to stop acting like Hebrews because there was a price to pay to be a Christ follower. The pressure was on, and people were not staying with Jesus. So what I want to do with the rest of the time that we have this morning is I want to sort of pull back the lens and give you a big picture view of the book of Hebrews to kind of cut it into some sections so that as you read it and as you study it in these months, you'll have some context. We can't forget the context in which it was written written to persecuted believers who were Jewish believers who were going back to their Jewish roots. Knowing that will help us understand what the author is trying to communicate. And by the way, we don't know who the author is. Some think it's Paul. Uh, some think it's Barnabas because a church father by the name of Tertullian said it was Barnabas. Um, some think it's Apollos. Some think it's Aquila and Priscilla from the book of Acts. We don't know who it is. But what we do know is they have a rich understanding of the Jewish faith and they are writing primarily to new Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. So let's just pull back the lens a bit on the whole book of Hebrews, 13 chapters, and see what the natural divisions are in the sections. And frankly, there's just two main sections to the book. Uh, there's the doctrinal section, which is found in chapters 1 through chapter 10, verse 18. The doctrinal section is just sort of the, the main teaching uh, part of the book. And then there's the practical section of the book which is Hebrews 10, 19 through the end of chapter 13. And by the way, this is probably the part of the book that most of us are most familiar with. This is a section where you have the heroes of the faith, you know, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, throw off every sin that entangles you. Um, this, is, this is the stuff that's easier to apply. Uh, and it's, that's because it's the practical section. Um, so those are the two main divisions of the book. And, and let me just dive into each of those sections. Start with the doctrinal section. Because that's divided as well, uh, and, it, and it's noted in this verse here. Hebrews 5, verses 5 through 6. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. By the way, I, what I would do is I'd underline that phrase, you are my son. You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever. And I would underline that phrase there. 
You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Those two phrases, you are my son, you are, you are a priest forever, speak of the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ, which is the two divisions within the doctrinal section. The person Jesus and the work Jesus. And that's the first 10 chapters. This is heavy in Christology or the study of Christ. The book of Hebrews is all about exalting Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's why we've come here today. We have come here today to worship Jesus, to lift him high, to exalt him. And Hebrews is rich in Christology. So we're, we will be, we'll be so focused on the person of Jesus. And, uh, and, and we'll learn much about who he is. And what, what, what's going to happen here is in each of these sections, what the author is going to do, remember, the context is we've got people under pressure. They're pulling away from Jesus. The author is saying, here's who Jesus is. Don't pull away because as a person, he's greater than prophets, angels, Moses, Joshua, Aaron, Levitical priesthood, and by implication, Abraham. He's greater than all those. And notice the, the author is laying out all the heavy hitters from Judaism. These are the big names. And so what he's saying is, Jesus is greater as a person than all your big heavyweights you could bring into the ring. He's bigger. He's stronger. And by the way, you, know, this, you might misunderstand this, this whole section because this kind of sounds like, like you know, kids on a playground saying, my dad can beat your dad up. Remember that? You, you probably used to do that too. My dad's smarter than your dad. Oh yeah, well my dad can beat you up or you know, that, that, that whole argument. That, that's, a, that's an argument that in degree, Jesus is better or in degree, my dad's better than your dad. It's kind of like saying Peyton Manning's a better quarterback than Tim Tebow. Whether you agree or not, it's true. Uh, that he's, <laughs> Peyton Manning is a, is a better quarterback. That, that is someone who is greater or superior in degree. They just have more, more skill in this. This is not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's not saying, yeah, Jesus can take the angels and the prophets. He can take all these big names. You know, he's stronger, wiser, smart, all that. That's not what he's saying. Let me just give you a picture. This, this is a uh, uh, sort of a message in a bottle, okay? I, I, I think some, somewhere back in time, this was actually a mode of communication, meaning that if you were like on an island somewhere and you were in trouble, you would write a note, stick it in a bottle, and then cork it and huck it out into the ocean, hoping, hoping that the ocean currents would take your message and somehow through handing off from person to person, get to the person that you wanted the message to get to and they would know what you wanted. Now, um, that is one way to communicate and that takes a while. Uh, an example of this would be from uh, last year, September 2012. A fisherman off the United Kingdom, Great Britain, pulled in his nets and pulled in a message in a bottle. He pulled the message out. The message was, was written in 1914. It was dropped in the North Sea. It was a postcard. They were, they were scientific experiments tracking ocean currents in the North Sea. And when you got this postcard, you were supposed to note where you were and send it in so they'd know where that current went. 98 years later, the message got there. If you're in trouble and you're waiting 98 years you're still in trouble, right? Well, that's one way to communicate. Uh, and sending a message, and, and in 98 years or 100 years, getting that message getting there. There's another way to communicate. It's called text messaging, right? Text, you can text message somebody, and it doesn't get there in 98 years. It doesn't even get there in 98 seconds. It gets there like that. 
It is a superior way. It is a greater way to send a message. Are you tracking with me? It is, it's not just like, like, well, my bottle's faster than your bottle. No, it's a completely different way of communicating. You have to keep that in mind when you look at all these statements that we're gonna be reading, that Jesus is greater, Jesus is superior. You'll see those words over and over again in the person of Jesus, as well as the work of Jesus. Here's the work of Christ. His covenant is superior, his offering is superior by who he is, his offering is superior in effectiveness, tabernacle is superior, access to the holy place is superior. He is in kind, not in degree like Manning Tebow, he is in kind a class by himself when it comes to who he is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. That's what the author is saying when they're saying Jesus is greater. The doctrinal section is divided up in those two things, those, the idea of the person of Christ and then the work of Christ. That gets us to chapter 10 where we get to the practical section. And the practical section is set up by Hebrews chapter 10, verses 20 through to 24. So we just covered that whole doctrinal section, big picture. Now we'll big picture look at the, the, the practical section. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. And I'd underline the word faith there. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope, and I'd underline the word hope here. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And I'd underline the word love there. Because faith, hope, and love are the topics of chapter 11, 12, and 13. Chapter 11 is a call to faith. Chapter 12 is a call to hope. Chapter 13 is a call to love. In the book of Leviticus, we said it was an ABC book and how to do life with God. You could say the end of Hebrews is an ABC book on how to stay with Jesus. Faith, hope, and love. And we'll get to that and talk about the, 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 the meaning of those, those three calls for us. That's the practical section. The doctrinal section, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus. The practical section, faith, hope, and love, and it's all encapsulated in this context of staying with Jesus. The pressure is on. There is a price to follow Jesus. These new Jewish believers are losing their jobs. They're losing their homes. They're losing their families, and they're sort of just taking off the Jesus jacket, so to speak, and rolling it up because there is a price to be paid, and what the author is saying is, no, 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 stay with Jesus because of who he is, what he's accomplished for you, and here's some, some practical steps that you can take to stick it out with him. That's the book of Hebrews. In 1983, a Korean airliner took off from Anchorage, Alaska, headed for Seoul, Korea. It took off, and about a half hour to an hour into the flight, the pilot and the co-pilot didn't realize it, but they were just off a hair of a degree on, on their, their, uh, their, their navigation. So much that in an hour, they were five miles north of where they should have been. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal, an hour into a flight. But five hours into their flight, they were not five miles off their flight plan. They were 180 miles off their flight plan. And they were flying over Russian airspace. And it just so happened that in 1983, 
that Russia on that day was, uh, was doing a missile test. And they were a little edgy that day. So when this unidentified aircraft came flying into their airspace, uh, they uh, sent some fighters up and they shot that plane out of the sky. 267 crew members, uh, passengers and crew members lost their lives on that day. Simply because at the beginning, they were just a hair off on their, on their navigation. They, were, they got off course. Some of you can remember that news story. It was pretty big news back in the day. Now, here, here's a question for you. How do we get off course in our walk with Christ? And if we do get off course, is there temp- the temptation just to minimize and say, that's not that big of a deal? Well, the reality is, is when you play it out over the years, it is a big deal. It impacts our ability to walk with Christ in faithfulness. One of the subplots of the book of Hebrews, as the author is making his case to people who are under pressure, one of the threads of continuity through the book is these warnings to people who are thinking about drifting or turning away from Christ. And you see them all through the book. And what I want to do, that Lord and the team are going to join me up here on the platform, I want to kind of bring us to a point of application as we look at these warnings. And again, we'll hit them as we study each chapter. But I want, to see, I want, to, want you to see how, how these early believers were getting off course and also let us know that this is exactly how it happens for us. So the author warns in chapter two, warns these believers who are under pressure, warns them of neglecting such a great salvation and drifting away. Drifting. Drifting is, uh, well, you know, you, you always drift downstream. You don't drift upstream. And he warns them, hey, don't get caught in drifting. And the second, uh, the second thing that uh, he warns them is he warns them of an evil heart of unbelief in turning away. And then he warns them uh, a third against laziness and falling away. And then fourthly, warns them against defiance with deliberate and continued sinning. And then warns, lastly, against the danger of despising our birthright. Now, I want you to look at these, these five warnings here because these are not warnings just for those people. These are warnings that are very applicable to us today. See, we, we may not think we're drifting, but maybe we have let go of some disciplines. Maybe we have kind of coasted and when you're drifting, you never, you never expect, you know, well, someday, I guess what I'm going to do, I'm going to despise my birthright, like Esau did. And that's not what you, what you think. But over time, what happens, you have this pattern of drifting away, turning away, falling away. And it's characterized by deliberate sinning, and it leads you to a point where you just say, I don't want nothing to do with God. That's the warnings that are seasoned all through this book. Now, the team is going to come out here, and what we want to do is I want to take some time to, to process this and, uh, and, and have some time for us uh, to pray through some of these, uh, these warnings. Because maybe you're here today, and the Spirit would say to you, um, you've been drifting. And we're at the beginning of a new year. What a great time 
for us just to pause and say, you know what? I, I, need, to, I need to stick with Jesus. I, I need to get back on track with Christ. Christ. 